that we take. Thanks for the question. Okay, anybody want to know about God? I mean, you're Christian. How, how do Buddhists feel about God? What do you think? You don't know? Okay. A lot of Buddhists feel that way too. <laughs> okay, the Buddha, the Buddha believed in the gods of India, small gs. Now this is like 500 years before Christianity, so he had never met a Jew. He lived in India, actually in Nepal, and so he didn't even know that there was another religion with one god and everybody was doing that thing. In his time, in his place, Hinduism, there were many gods, a hierarchy of gods. And I imagine at some point he went to a hill on a full moon night. And he said, you know, gods of India, all I see is suffering. Animals suffering, plants are suffering, humans are suffering. Can you just step forward and end human suffering? That's all, just one thing. That's all I'm going to ask. Just come here and just end human suffering. And all he heard was silence. Nothing. They didn't didn't even show their faces. Now, if you think about today, if you were to go to a little hill on a full moon night and ask God, come on, God, I pray to you, I respect you, can you just end my suffering? What do you think he, she, it would do? Do you think it would end your suffering? Well, probably not. So the Buddha said, Okay, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. So he went and found the answer to suffering. We call it nirvana, the end of suffering. Nirvana is the end of suffering. And what he did in respect to the gods of India is he worked with them, taught them how to end their suffering too. Because even the gods had desire. Even the gods, and we're talking about small gs, had a craving, had a thirst. And he would explain to them that that's the reason you're suffering. That's the reason. So when you say, do Buddhists believe in God? I would have to say some do but not because of Buddhism. I would say some don't, but not because of Buddhism. I would say some don't know, that's because of Buddhism. The only reason, the only reason Buddhism is here today in your classroom is because people still suffer. So we don't actually care if we ever have a relationship with God or not. We want to end our suffering. Now you might say, well, you know what? If you don't have a relationship with God, where do you go when you die? Do you go right to hell without passing go and collecting $200? Well, you know what? Buddhism has 30 heavens and 30 hells. We have so many places to go, and none of them are Christian heaven or Christian hell. We have our own unique heavens and hells. And I think if you look at most other religions, maybe not Judaism or, or, or Islam, but the other religions that you'll be writing about when it comes to world peace, you'll find that they have 
a unique afterlife concept as well. And they've been doing those practices or devotions ever since their religion started. And, and people have died long before Christianity came on the earth. So where did they all go? I said to myself. You know? And where are they going to go when they aren't in a country practicing Christianity? If they were born a Buddhist in Malaysia. You know? And all the Christians go, whoa, poor guy. Right to hell. And the Buddhists go, no, it's okay. And you're suffering. And you're suffering. And if you don't achieve nirvana in this lifetime, you'll go to heaven. You'll stay there for a really long time. But everything in Buddhism is impermanent. So eventually you even have to leave a Buddhist heaven to come back to a lower realm like the human realm so you can find the Dharma, so you can practice, so you can end your suffering, end your karma, and end all future rebirths. So we don't think there's only one rebirth. Now if you're a Christian, this is your first time here. And I ask you, where were you before you were born? Did you just simply not exist? And then how long was that? How long was it before you were born? Forever? Isn't that a trip? And you know what? It seemed okay, didn't it, before you were born? Because we don't have any memories of it. And then somehow we got here. Somehow a miracle happened. Your mother and your father liked each other enough to have you. Now, with the 7 billion people in the world, to find that one unique person, I consider that a miracle. And then here you are. And how long are you going to be here? 50, 60, 70, maybe 80 years. And then you'll never, ever come back again. If you're a Christian, you get to go to heaven forever, which is like the same forever that you left to get here to be a human. Isn't that a trip when you look at it that way? In Zen Buddhism, we have a question. What was your original face before you were born? And then you go meditate and reflect and you say, What was my original face before I was born? As a Buddhist, we feel that we have always been here. We have just taken different shapes and forms and personalities. There was no beginning and there was no end. We don't have a first cause in Buddhism. It's like a big circle. And so I'm here now, and I'll be here for a few more years, and then I have to leave. And then the question is, will I have enough time in this lifetime to achieve nirvana, or do I have to come back again? And if I come back again, will I come back as a human, or will I come back as something else? So let me give you the six realms of existence. It's the Reader's Digest explanation of the 30 heavens and 30 hells. Number one, first heaven, perfect. It's just the way you think it should be. All your desires are satisfied. It's just beautiful all the time. And then at some point, because the karma that puts you in that heaven has worn out, you have to leave. And you don't want to leave. This is the perfect place to be. But they say, no, the karma guy says your karma's up, you got to go. 
The second heaven isn't quite as good because there's a little bit of desire attached to it, a little bit of craving attached to it. You never find that perfect place in heaven because this heaven isn't perfect. And you're always just a little dissatisfied. It's like going to Disneyland. You know, the happiest place on earth? And you're never quite as happy as you should be. And your parents are less happy because they paid a hundred bucks to get you in. So this heaven is sort of like that. Then you have the human realm. This is the best place we could have ever been born according to Buddhism, because this is where the Dharma exists. This is where we can find the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, and end our cycle of rebirths forever. Now the reason we want to end our cycle of rebirths is this. If you have been reborn a human a hundred times, a thousand times, ten thousand times, you have watched your parents die ten thousand times. And all those little cats and dogs you had as pets, you have watched them die more than 10,000 times. And all your friends and relatives that you really loved and wanted to hang around, they died too, and you had to bury them. And if you could collect the tears you have shed because of all the death you have experienced in these many lifetimes, it would fill the oceans and they would run over. That's how sad life on earth is. We don't know that yet because we are deluded and ignorant and we don't see the true nature of that reality. And what Buddhism is designed to do is, number one, first wake you up and say, this is why your life is terrible. Now, before I became a Buddhist, I thought my life was really good. I had a car, I had a girlfriend, had some cool polyester shirts, my hair looked good. And then I found Buddhism. And they say, you know what? Your life is just a one big delusion. You're born with original ignorance and you can't see things the way they really are. You think things exist for a certain amount of time, sometimes forever. Nothing exists forever. Yesterday when I came here, I was coming down Torrance Boulevard. I wanted to stop off at McDonald's and get a cup of coffee. What do you think happened? It's gone. Torn down. I'm thinking, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Last time I was here, it was right there. And then I remember what the Buddha said. The Buddha said, everything is impermanent. Even McDonald's. <laughs> so, what am I going to do? I now, I now found out that suffering is the true nature of my life and reality. And the Buddha then said to all of us Buddhists, hey, there is a way out. You can be free from suffering. I discovered it 2,600 years ago. I can tell you what I did so you can do the same thing. But I can't do it for you. I can't save you because I'm dead. The Buddha died. He didn't come back. But we have what he said. We have what he said. So we can do that as well. And if we meditate and follow his instructions, we can come to a place of not suffering. Now, I've used the word suffering maybe 20 times so far. Let me define what suffering is and why it's never any good. 
Some people say, well, it's good to suffer. It makes you stoic. It makes you a better person. It makes you stronger. A Buddhist would say there's nothing ever good about suffering. Nothing. Suffering is, suffering happens, suffering happens when you want things to be different than they are. If you have pain and you don't want pain, you will suffer. If you want a girlfriend and don't have one, you will suffer. If you want a Ford and have a Chevy, you will suffer. All the explanations or examples that you can think of where things aren't exactly the way you think they should be, you will suffer. Now, a lot of people spend a lot of time on their hair. And sometimes you get a really good hair day. And then the very next day, it's just terrible. I woke up today and said, I'm having a really good hair day. But if I didn't like the way I looked, I would suffer. I don't like the way I look, but I've come to accept it. If I could look any other way, I probably would. But this is what I got. And it keeps changing on me. When I was 20, I wasn't bad. I had a swagger. You know? And then I turned 30 and 40 and I gained a little weight. You know, I'm like, oh man. And then I turned 50 and 60 and I lost some hair. And I'm going, man, I don't know what's coming next, but I'm not ready for it. So our whole life is, we are constantly changing. We are constantly becoming other people, different people, new people. And we can't stop the process. We can't hold anything and say, don't change. I don't want you to change. It's going to change. Even while you're holding on to it, it's changing right now. And that's what Buddha said about suffering. We get attached to things the way they are, and then they change, and we are so disappointed, because generally speaking, they don't change in a good way. They change in a way that's unexpected, and maybe unwanted. Bummer, bummer. So I'm listening to all these Dharma talks, back when I was 28 and I was going to die. I'm going, man, you know, my whole life I thought it was okay, and now I look at my whole life and I'm thinking, I was just living a lie. My parents were in conspiracy. They told me how it was, and I listened to them, and I believed them, because they were my parents, and they didn't want me to suffer. They knew a lot of the bad stuff already, because they had lived through it, but they didn't want me to know it. So they just made this whole thing up, and I'm just going, oh, look how nice, school. You know, I never liked school. It, it always caused me physical pain to learn things. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but you know what? There's something called a paradigm clash. So a paradigm is a model that we're used to, like the world is flat. That's a paradigm. And then somebody figures out, no, the world is round. And that's another paradigm. And now we have a paradigm clash. Doom, doom. Which one will win? Well, the round people won. Now, in our books, we know that it is round. But sometimes I felt that, no, the world is flat. And it gave me a headache. And every time I had to go to school and learn some new stuff, I had to forget some old stuff. And I wondered, how much room is there in my head to learn all this stuff? Will I forget half of it once I get out of school? Probably. Maybe even more. 
will I ever use all the stuff I learn in school? No. <laughs> there you go. That was my problem. And I had some really nice teachers, and I had some teachers that weren't so nice. And then you had the whole social thing in school. You had the groups, you know, the cool groups and the not so cool groups. You know, and I, I just never made it to the cool level. And I just was so disappointed. I thought, you know, I should be part of that, but I'm not. Because I was a little shy, you know. And then I got out of school, and then I looked at the world, and I went, how am I going to make a living? i got to work now. i got to pay rent. i got to buy food. i got to learn how to cook. And if something gets ripped, i got to learn how to sew, because I can't afford to take it to the cleaners. And so my whole life became just survival for many years. After school, none of the stuff I learned helped me find an apartment. There you go, right? I know. I know. It didn't tell me what kind of clothes I should buy. I always bought the wrong clothes, fashion over function. And I'm just thinking, oh man, you know. And so then the girlfriends, you know. I just never found the right one. And I thought to myself, what's wrong with me? Well, the problem was I was looking for one. See, if you look for something, you'll never find it. You just got to give up and say, you know, there's not a girl in the world for me. And there she is. You go, whoa, where did she come from? Why couldn't I find her before? Because I had a picture in my head of what I wanted. And those pictures in your head, they don't exist out there. They only exist in here. It took me a long time to figure that out. So in my 40s, I said to myself, well, I really like Buddhism. I don't have a wife or children. Probably won't. Don't have a really great career. Maybe I could be a monk. Maybe I could spend time meditating, reading the ancient texts, getting wisdom and insight into the true nature. So I moved into a meditation center and got ordained, and I became the residential manager. I got to quit my job, and now I got to find residents for the meditation center. And you know what? When you try to find people to live together, it is so difficult. Because everybody has their own idea of how they want to live, and if you have to live with other people, you have to modify. You have to sort of forgive. You have to sort of change in order to create harmony within the group. So we had 20 people living together who were all completely different. Most of them weren't Buddhists, most of them didn't meditate, and some of them didn't pay the rent. So I had to go and I had to sort of, you know, pay your rent, come on, don't play the radio too loud, doing all that. And it's just, it's sort of like work, except when you become a monk or nun, it's a lifestyle. You never take a vacation. Where do you go when you're not a monk? Even if you take off your robes, in here you're still a monk. And where can you go when no one suffers? Even if you went to the beach in Hawaii, you have people suffering from sunburn. Can you help me? I'm suffering. Yes, where's the cream? So it's like, wow, what's the purpose of my life? The purpose of my life at this point is to become nobody. See, all those years in school and all those stories and talks my parents gave to me were designed to make me into somebody. So I became somebody. But did that somebody really exist? And according to Buddhism, no. No, we never exist in the way we think we do.
We are just a bunch of component parts. Name and form, body and mind. The five aggregates, the five parts that come together to create us, according to Buddhist psychology. When you look deeply inside to find out the true nature of who you are, that little essence that doesn't change, that thing that stands against all odds, you look and you can't find anything because it's simply a process that manifests because of mind and body. So when you say, I am, you're actually deluded. You're better off saying, I do. This is what I do. And that can be proven because it manifests in the world. This is who I am. That's always internal. Nobody knows that but you. And even you don't know that because there's no you to be. So I'm there after a half-life of working and being somebody. Now my job is to become nobody. So I sit for long periods of time watching my mind, meditation, watching that self arise, exist, and pass away. And sometimes that self just sort of goes away for a while, and I get beyond the self, and what do I see? What do I see when I transcend who I think I am? Well, I'll give you my explanation. What I see when I transcend who I am, I see sight, I hear sounds, I smell, I taste, I touch. Those are my sense doors, and they bring in all the information necessary to make me someone. They also separate me from the world. That ego takes this information and writes the story of my life. It's been doing that ever since I had an ego, which is probably four or five months old. So my ego keeps writing the story and bringing in different characters to make the story more interesting. Sometimes I'm a victor, sometimes I'm a victim. But the story is continually changing and evolving as I do when I experience new things, learn new things, intellectualize. Wow. So then, right? Getting close to death? Who dies? No one. Because now you're in the process of becoming nobody, and if you succeed, you can say with great conviction, nobody dies well. Got that one? Nobody dies well. So if I can become nobody, I have solved the problem of dying, which got me to Buddhism. Remember, 28? I don't know how to die. Nobody ever told me how to die. They only told me how to live. Nobody gave me the manual. There is no manual. Each one of us is unique. Each one of us has never lived before. Even if you believe in reincarnation, this is a new you, a unique you. There are seven billion unique human beings. And there is no manual for us. Nobody can ever tell us how to live because they've never lived our life, had our experiences, had our education, had our desires and wants, or have failed like us. Nobody. This is the first time. Think about that fifth precept, not to consume intoxicants. We need all the clarity and kindness we can manifest to get through this world. 
and not create disharmony, but create harmony. And then that final breath we take, who takes the final breath? Nobody. Bang. And then within 49 days, one more time, you start again. That new life. But nothing from this life goes to the next life according to Buddhism except your karmic energy. Karmic energy migrates lifetime to lifetime. Self-ego migrates moment to moment. Can anybody tell me how long a moment is? A moment? How long, what's the duration of a moment? Can anybody tell me how many moments are in a minute? I will tell you, because I thought this was just fascinating. Moments have no duration. You can have a million moments in a minute, or you can have one moment in a minute. So moment to moment, our self, our personality, our identity is migrating to the next who we are, to the next person we're going to be. So at 18, you're somebody... 25 or somebody, 35 or somebody. And because of all those people that lived before you, you are here today. They have become your ancestors. All those people in just this one lifetime, they are your ancestors. And when I go, I just posted a picture on Facebook. If anybody's on Facebook, I love Facebook. It's so much fun. I posted a picture from 1966 when I was in military school. And I was just standing there, and I was just, I was a cool for a while. And, and I thought to myself, wow, that guy died 50 years ago. Me, at 17, I died 50 years ago. That little boy, or that, the beginning of the young man. And every time I look at an old picture of me, I say, wow, he's dead too. All those dead me's throughout the decades. And I just look at them and say, wow, you know what? It's amazing that they turned into this. Because if you saw some of these pictures, you would say to yourself, that will never turn into this. And I felt the same way. But we have the opportunity, because of the choices we make, to become a better person the next time. In the next moment. And let me tell you how that works, okay? There's something in Buddhism called the three poisons. Greed, hatred, and delusion. The three poisons. Greed, hatred, and delusion. These poisons reside in our consciousness. And oftentimes they will direct what we say and what we do. If we are moved forward by the intention of greed, there will be an unpleasant result. If we move forward with an intention of hatred, there will be an unpleasant consequence. If we move forward with an intention of delusion or ignorance, we may get lost and not see clearly what's going on in our life. Now, I'm faced with greed all the time. I hate to admit it, but I'm working on it. I practice generosity. I feed feral cats, homeless cats who have no place to live. They have made their home in our backyard. We have eight right now, and they're all fat and fluffy. 
I spend $150 a month to feed these cats. I feed them twice a day, hour in the morning, hour in the evening. I sit next to the koi pond after I feed the koi fish, and I pet the cats. And I talk to them. Now, they don't understand what I say, but they feel what I say. And I'm happy to do that. That's a practice of generosity for me. And you know why it's a generosity? Because not once has any cat ever said thank you. They just look at you. You know? And then they walk away, expecting to be fed in another six or eight hours. That's generosity. It's not about thank yous. It's not about a pat on the back. You're doing it because you're reducing the suffering of eight cats who wouldn't have eaten if it wasn't for you. And sometimes they go out and tell their friends. So we might have ten cats at a dinner instead of eight, wondering where they came from and how they knew it was dinner time. But they know. So, what happens when greed arises in my life? Just yesterday, I was at Food for Less. You know, they have the best pet prices, cat food and dog food. Best. But even better than Vons. So I'm going there to get the cat food, and I just happen to walk down the bakery aisle. And what do I spot? Hostess cupcakes. They came back. Eight individually wrapped in one box for under $2.50. Greed arises. I've got to get that too. I go to the counter with cat food and hostess cupcakes. Now, I'm thinking to myself, should I share these? Should I eat them all or should I share some of them? Because greed would say, eat them all. Generosity would say, well, maybe just eat half and give half away. Well, I ate them all. <laughs> because I'm not a Buddha yet. So it was really a wonderful experience to have eight hostess cupcakes all to myself. Those preservatives, those preservatives may allow me to live just a little bit longer, too. So greed can manifest in many different ways. It doesn't have to be money and millions of dollars. It can be a hostess cupcake. But those are the poisons. And what the deal is, is if you can transform your greed into generosity, you'll suffer less. So my early practice in generosity was this. I'd get something from a vending machine, and I would leave the change behind. Quarter, ten cents, nickel. And then the next person would reach in there and find extra change and say, whoa, today's my day. Wow. There's no way to make anybody excited over ten cents these days unless they find it in a coin changer. That's it. So I did that for a really long period of time. And then sometimes I'll just give money to people. In my neighborhood, which is Koreatown, Vermont Avenue, a lot of traffic, and a lot of little stalls and stands that people set up to sell stuff. There's this old Mexican guy who sells balloons. Got a big stick with all these colorful balloons. And he sits in a chair and he just waits for people to buy a balloon. I've never seen anybody buy a balloon from him. But if I see him, what I do is I take a dollar out and I give it to him. And then he doesn't speak English, so he just looks at me like, what the hell's wrong with me? And I just give it to him. And I, you know, and then he goes, thank you. And then I go. So why would I do that? Is a dollar going to change his life? No. Not at all. 
But it changes my life because I'm practicing generosity. Without any intention of getting a thank you, or, you know, I'm so happy you're in this life with me on Vermont Avenue when we're together. Nothing. So I'll pick out certain people, and I'll just give them a dollar here and a dollar there, and I walk away. That's it. Because it's my practice of generosity. Now, somebody says, but how about if you give money to somebody who's on drugs or alcohol, and they take all your money and they spend it on that? You're helping them get drunk. Is that the Buddhist way? Well, I've come to understand that you can't control anybody, especially the people you live with, but then the strangers forget it. So you're giving them the dollar not to buy alcohol. You're giving them the dollar because you have too much greed. And you're changing yourself. So generosity is for you, not for them. What do you think about that? Does that make sense? Sort of? Okay. It's just an odd way of looking at it, but see, we're practicing to get rid of the poisons. Greed into generosity, hatred into compassion, and kindness. Man, this is tough when you don't like people to be kind to them, you know? It's really difficult, but that's a way of understanding how hatred changes your perspective of the world and how kindness can change it back. And then delusion and ignorance. How do you ever get rid of that? Because that's necessary to be separate and to be an individual. If you consider yourself separate and an individual, you are deluded at an ultimate level of reality. So the ultimate level of reality in Buddhism is this. We are all interconnected and interdependent all the time. We are all interconnected and interdependent all the time. And if you feel separate, you are deluded. So why would we feel separate? Because I feel separate all the time. It allows me to function at a relatively good level in this very complicated society. Feeling separate is because we have an ego. And our ego needs to define things around us as being separate so we can use them. Think of this, that door. If I'm one with the door, I'll never leave this room. I have to be separate from the door in order to understand its function and to use it. I need to be separate from the car that I drive in order to drive it. I need to be separate from people in order to have a relationship with people. But ultimately, I am always interconnected and interdependent to everything around me, and there's no separation at all at an ultimate level, and there's always separation at a relative level. Our wisdom as a Buddhist comes from the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. It's the underlying truth of our relative existence that we have access to through meditation. Meditation oftentimes allows us to get past our intellectual activity, the mind, and come to the direct experience of the interconnectedness. And when that happens, your body feels pleasurable and blissful. There's a certain sense of mental peace that comes too. Because we came into the world as an interconnected being. 
And as we became individuals and became ourselves through school and parents and experience, we became more and more separate, more and more separate. So there's a little underlying dissatisfaction because we can never embrace the world the way it used to embrace us before we had the ego. But through meditation and transcendence, we have some opportunities to have that direct experience and see the true ultimate nature and apply it to the relative nature. And then the deal is to do the dance between the relative and the ultimate. So sometimes it's okay to be ultimate, sometimes it's okay to be relative. If you're being pulled over by a police person, man or woman, you got to be relative. You got to pull out your driver's license and say, Officer, this is who I am. And you know you're not that person on a piece of plastic. That's just a picture, two dimensional. It has really nothing to do with you, but everybody is in conspiracy to say that's what you need for your personal identification because we need to know who you are. So if I'm the meditator and I go to the officer and I say, you know, officer, this is my license, but this isn't really who I am. I am so much more than this. He might take me in for counseling. Overnight stay at the hospital. So it's like, okay, sometimes I need to be relative. But other times, say I'm walking on the beach and, and the sun is going down and the seagulls flying over the ocean, I can just sort of merge into that for a few moments. And it just really feels so good. And that would be the ultimate experience of who I am. Because I wouldn't necessarily be there, I'd be the sand and the ocean and the seagulls in the air. That's a nice thing to be for a while. It gives us a break. It's hard to be somebody all the time. And people demand that from us. So far, so good? Okay.